The following is an encore presentation of Everything Everywhere Daily. In the year 312, two claimants to the Roman imperial throne met outside the walls of Rome near a bridge that crossed the Tiber River. The subsequent battle that followed was not that much different than many other Roman battles which had been fought over the centuries. However, the implications of that battle have had long-reaching ramifications that have shaped the world for the past 1,700 years. Learn more about the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and how it changed the world on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. This episode is sponsored by Memento. If your family's like mine, you may have had grandparents or great-grandparents whose stories have been lost to time. You wish you had their stories and their voices so that they could be shared for posterity. Memento is a company that helps families and individuals record important events. In Memento's most popular product, The Lifebook, participants are asked questions about their lives and document them in a high-quality hardbound book. Unlike other providers, however, Memento goes one step further. In addition to the usual questions about your life that awaken your memories, you can also use Memento to create special memory books, for example, about loved ones who've passed away together with the whole family. And not just in writing, but also with voice memos and videos that can be inserted into the books and played back. With Mother's Day just around the corner, this may be the one gift that will not only honor your mom's life, but will provide lasting memories for years to come. For my listeners, Memento has something special. Use code EED15 and you'll get a 15% discount on your order. Just visit Memento, M-E-M-I-N-T-O dot com and start your journey into the world of personal stories. When looking back at world history, there are great battles and there are important battles. And not all great battles are important and not all important battles are great. The Battle of Cannae, which I did a previous episode, was a great battle. Hannibal and the Carthaginians defeated the Romans in one of the most lopsided victories in history. However, it wasn't really an important victory insofar as the Carthaginians ended up losing the war. The Battle of Stalingrad between Germany and the Soviet Union and the Battle of Gaugamela between Alexander the Great and the Persians were both great and important battles. And I would place the Battle of the Milvian Bridge into the category of battles that were not great, but were extremely important. To understand the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, you have to understand what was happening in the Roman Empire in the early 4th century. During the 3rd century, the Roman Empire was a mess. 
The assassination of Emperor Severus Alexander in 235 ushered in a 50-year period of anarchy known as the Crisis of the 3rd Century. There were civil wars, rebellions, uprising, and barbarian invasions, and no fewer than 26 men claimed the imperial throne during this period. It finally ended with the rise of Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian reigned for 21 years, which was an eternity for a Roman emperor at this time, and did something few emperors ever did. He retired from power and died a natural death. Diocletian realized that the empire had simply become too large for one person to rule. To solve this problem, he created a system known as the Tetrarchy. The Tetrarchy divided the empire into two halves, east and west. A senior emperor would lead each side of the empire with the title of Augustus. Each Augustus would be paired with a junior partner with the title of Caesar. The Caesar would be the designated successor to the Augustus, thus ensuring that there would always be a smooth transition of power. And the Tetrarchy worked pretty well. For a while. Diocletian was the unified Augustus of the empire, and he appointed as his Caesar a man by the name of Maximian. And Maximian was eventually named the co-Augustus with Diocletian. In the year 305, in a bloodless transfer of power, Diocletian and Maximian retired, and the new Augusti, Augustuses, were Galerius in the east and Constantius in the west. Their respective Caesars, second in command, were Maximius Dia in the east and Flavius Valerius Severus in the west. Problems began the next year in 306 when Constantius died in Britain while he was campaigning, in what is today the city of York. After he died, his army proclaimed his son, Constantine, as the new Augustus in the West. Constantine, not wanting to cause a civil war, agreed to be the junior Caesar to Severus, who was now the new Augustus. This angered Maximian's son, Maxentius, who felt that he should have been named the new Caesar. What happened over the next few years was extremely complicated, and I've thought of ways to explain it, but I think this is the easiest way to do it. Maxentius got the Senate and the Praetorian Guard to declare him emperor with his father. And then his father turned on him and joined up with him again. Severus marched to Rome to take up Maxentius and was killed, making Constantine the new Augustus in the West. Maximian eventually tried to kill Constantine, and he was caught and then forced to kill himself. Galerius died in 311, which set the entire empire into chaos. By 312, the dust had sort of settled, and Constantine and Maxentius were the two major claimants for the throne, and they were on a path to war. Maxentius controlled the Italian peninsula, Sicily, Corsica, and North Africa. Constantine controlled Britain, Spain, and Gaul. In the spring, Constantine and his army of 40,000 men marched over the Alps and headed to Italy. They took what are the modern-day cities of Turin and Milan, besieged Verona, and then headed to Rome, where Maxentius was waiting. Maxentius's plan was originally to just wait him out behind the walls of Rome. However, he consulted with the Sibylline books, which said that on the next day, an enemy of Rome will die. And if you remember back to my episode on the Sibylline books, you always have to be careful how you interpret them. He figured that meant that he was going to win a battle, so he decided to take the fight to Constantine. The location of the battle was just across the Milvian Bridge, which was a stone bridge that crossed the Tiber and led to the Via Flamina, which was an important Roman road. Maxentius had also built a pontoon bridge right across the river next to the stone bridge. The battle commenced on October 28 in the year 312. Maxentius's men were pushed back due to poor planning on Maxentius's part, and they had nowhere to go because the river was behind them. This led to a stampede across both bridges, with the pontoon bridge collapsing, drowning almost everyone on it, including Maxentius. Constantine won the day, 
became the unified emperor of Rome, established a new capital city that bore his name, and became known as Constantine the Great. What I just described is the basic X's and O's of the story of the battle. And for those of you familiar with the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, you will have noticed that I have left out what is by far the most important part of the story and the thing which made the battle so important to world history. The details of what made the battle so important have differed over time. I'll give the most common version of the story, which might just be apocryphal, but it might as well have been true for the purposes of creating a legend. Supposedly the night before the battle, Constantine had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a cross with words inscribed on it in Greek that read, In tuto nika. In Latin, it reads, In hoc signo vences. And the English translation is, In this sign you shall conquer. When Constantine woke up, he asked some of his men who were familiar with Christianity what this meant. They said it was a message from God. Constantine then ordered all of his men to paint the Cairo symbol on their shields before the battle. The Cairo is the superimposition of the Greek letters Chi and Rho, which are the first two letters of the Greek words Christos. It looks like an elongated P with an X at the bottom, and early Christian communities used it as a symbol for Christ. Having received a message from God and painted their shields, Constantine went on to win the battle and converted to Christianity. Or at least that's how the story goes. Here I should note that Christians were just a minor sect in the Roman Empire at the time of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. They had no real political, economic, or military power. They had been persecuted for almost 300 years by the Romans, with the greatest persecution occurring under Diocletian and Constantine's father. It's estimated that Christians probably only made up about 10% of the empire's population at the time of the battle. However, it had been growing rapidly over the last 50 years. Christianity may have only constituted 2% of the empire in the year 2050. Several histories of the period do mention Constantine having a dream, but others omit the story entirely. However, none of the original stories of the dream have it taking place the night before the battle. If it did happen, it probably happened months before on the march to Rome. Likewise, the shields might have been painted much earlier as well, and possibly with a cross and not a Cairo. There's an enormous amount of debate amongst historians regarding Constantine and Christianity. In particular, the very simple question of if Constantine was in fact a Christian himself. Much of what we know comes from a Greek Christian historian named Eusebius. Eusebius actually met and interviewed Constantine later in his life and wrote his biography, The Vita Constantini. Eusebius makes note of Constantine's dream in his biography, but doesn't link it to a particular time nor the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. As for Constantine, if he had converted to Christianity at this time, he had a funny way of showing it. Right after the battle, he marched into Rome and went directly to the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, which was the main pagan temple in the city. Today, you can see for yourself the Arch of Constantine in Rome, and nowhere on it is there any mention of anything to do with Christianity. Likewise, official Roman coins and documents reference the Roman sun god Saul Evictus for at least 12 years after the battle. So, if he was a Christian, he wasn't in your face about it as an emperor. Many think Constantine was probably influenced by his mother, St. Helena. However, according to Eusebius, Helena didn't convert to Christianity until after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. It's widely assumed that he wasn't baptized until he was near death, which was his get-out-of-jail-free card for all the sins he had committed in his life, including murdering his own family members. He was baptized by either Eusebius himself or by Pope Sylvester I. 
However, the story of Pope Sylvester baptizing him may have been made up after the fact because Eusebius embraced the Arian heresy. And also in the 7th century, it was part of a forged document called the Donation of Constantine, which was used to justify papal control over the city of Rome because supposedly Constantine had given it to the church in his will. So, Constantine's personal religious beliefs are a major question mark, as is the veracity of the story of him seeing a cross in a dream. What there isn't any doubt about are the policies that Constantine implemented after he became emperor. A little over three months after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which gave Christianity formal tolerance of the empire and officially recognized freedom of religion. A copy of a letter sent to the governor of Bithynia in northern Turkey reported the edict by saying, quote, When we, Constantine Augustus and Licinius Augustus, met so happily at Milan and considered together all that concerned the interest and security of the state, we decided to grant Christians and to everybody the free power to follow the religion of their choice, in order that all is divine in the heavens may be favorable and propitious towards all who are placed under our authority. End quote. This did not make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That wouldn't happen for another 67 years. But the Christians were now allowed to practice their religion out in the open, which only accelerated the growth of the religion. In the years after the Edict of Milan, Constantine wasn't really neutral about Christianity. While at first he did actually encourage and fund the construction of Roman temples, by the end of his reign he was pillaging them and tearing them down. Constantine was a patron of some of the Roman Empire's first churches. Before the Edict of Milan, most Christians secretly met in private homes. Constantine paid for the construction of these first buildings, including the original St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which I touched on in a previous episode. He also commissioned at least four of the first churches in Constantinople. And he commissioned copies of the Bible, at least the Gospels, for those churches in Constantinople. He was also responsible for calling the Council of Nicaea in 325, which attempted to resolve the issue of Arianism, which held that Jesus was subordinate to God the Father. It was probably the biggest issue facing the Christian community in the early 4th century. So, you should be able to see why the Battle of the Milvian Bridge was such an important battle. It was Constantine's victory that allowed him to become emperor and allowed Christianity to move from becoming an underground minority sect to eventually becoming the official religion in the Roman Empire, the dominant religion in Europe, and then spread around the globe to every continent. And it was all due to a battle outside the walls of Rome on the banks of the Tiber River 1,700 years ago. The executive producer of Everything Everywhere Daily is Charles Daniel. The associate producers are Peter Bennett and Cameron Kiefer. I wanted to give a big thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Your support helps me put out a new show every day. And if you're interested in Everything Everywhere Daily merchandise, Patreon is currently the only place where it's available. And if you'd like to talk to other listeners of the show and get notified of future episodes and projects, please join my Facebook group or Discord server. Links to everything are in the show notes.